Realms is a really cool proposal. I'm really looking forward to that. Kind of want to build some stuff with it. And it's uh, mm-hmm. really cool. By the way, when is that going to be? When do you think that's going to be something that we can play with? <laughs> <laughs> can we get an ETA on our favorite yeah. features? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I think you may be able to play with it already. Like uh, you can work with the SES polyfill that allows you to do some of the stuff that Realms promises to be able to do. Or if you want, you can like grab the Firefox browser and try playing around with the compartments that we have, which is essentially the Realms proposal. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to Raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on YouTube each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe to our channel for notifications at youtube.com slash changelog. And join in the conversation on Twitter. We are at JSPartyFM. Okay, let's get right into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. everyone it's js party time we have a great show for you today i'm joined by my good friend for what's up for hey jared how's it going it's going very well excited to have a special guest with us from the spider monkey team it's yulia starts of yulia thanks for joining us my pleasure thank you for having me we are excited so spider monkey give us the tldr introduce everybody to what this is who's behind it what it's for etc so in the beginning there was the web And they came up with this idea for a programming language that would be controlling the behavior of the web. Brendan Eich designed it and developed it. And it was initially called, I think it was initially called, what, OakScript? After the first name. I should have actually practiced this intro. (laughs) Anyway, long story short, (laughs) there was the initial JavaScript engine before it was called JavaScript. And then they scrapped it all and rewrote it, and that's SpiderMonkey. We're almost 25 years old. We started our life as part of Netscape. And since then, we moved with the rest of the Netscape code base into being part of the Mozilla organization and making up Firefox. SpiderMonkey is a modern web browser. We are like the equivalent of V8 in Chrome or of JSC in Safari. And it's developed by Mozilla. We have contributors from the outside as well. And we're also embedded in a number of other domains. For example, inside of GNOME, a couple of databases that you might be familiar with and other places like that. That's SpiderMonkey. And we really like heavy metal. So these posters. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they have all sorts of cool posters, which they put on their website. We'll link those up in the show notes as well. So how did you get involved? So I have a bit of a weird backstory for ending up as a compiler engineer. I'm completely self-taught. I started learning how to program maybe five, six years ago now, maybe more. I've lost track of time. 
it's all a blur. But at some point I was like, you know, I began programming and I was like, okay, this is just a job. I'm just doing this to like get my next paycheck. And then I started getting really interested in, you know, how do you program? What's the best way to do it? What are all the tools, all these things, all these interesting bits and pieces that you can work with? And eventually I got involved with developer tools and got onto the DevTools team in Firefox. That code base is entirely done in JavaScript and HTML. So if you wanted as a JavaScript developer to go and like do your first contribution to a browser, because, you know, browser, it feels like this significant piece of software. That's a really great entry point, uh, the DevTools. I think several of the DevTools teams actually use JavaScript as a backing language for what they do. So I started working there and I got even more interested, like what's the design of the language? How do compilers work? How do you make this magical tool that is a programming language, which is so expressive and you can talk to other people through it? How does that happen? So I started teaching myself a little bit about compilers, a little bit about how languages are designed. Somehow by magic, I ended up on TC39 and helping with the design of the language, asking questions helping along from the developer tools perspective, like what does this new language feature look like in terms of developer tools? And eventually I moved entirely onto the SpiderMonkey team, which was my first exposure to C++ and also my first full-blown exposure to the complete structure of the compiler and working on it directly. That's the short version of the story. Wow, that's such an intense career arc. (laughs) (laughs) You started like programming five to six years ago and then find yourself on TC39 and writing compilers. That's quite the journey. I, yeah. It wasn't. <laughs> must be uh, intensely, like, I don't know, there must be something different about how you learn, or you must be, like, intensely curious to keep digging, you know, to the next layer below the stack at each stage of that process. You didn't just, you know, settle at the level of understanding that you had. You kind of kept going. That's pretty cool. So something someone once told me is that I was very brave, but my feeling of the situation, my comprehension of the situation was, oh, no, I just didn't know what was next. Yeah. <laughs> so somewhere between ignorance and bravery. Yeah. So you end up in this situation. But yeah, generally like curiosity. And also, I think one thing that helped me go from not really knowing that much about programming to working on a compiler was I actually never accepted that I couldn't. So some stuff was really, really hard. And I was like, I don't really feel all that smart when I look at this, but I never thought that I couldn't. And it's something that I've been telling others when they struggle, like if you stop yourself without allowing yourself to fail, 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 and then succeed, then you're not going to actually make it to that goal that you're going for. I have a lot of failures. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one thing I truly believe is that perseverance is one of the best character traits of great software developers and like the ability to persevere through that trouble, which you apparently have because a lot of us bang our head against you know hard objects and then eventually our head hurts and we're like, I'm just going to stop banging it. But it seems like you really just power through until you get over that hump. Yeah. You also, <laughs> Meteoric Rise, you also, I think, have a new record on JS Party. Time to first shout out. So in our chat, Omri gave you a shout out. Thanks, Yulia, for your work. I use Firefox every day to make sure that Google's V8 monopoly does not go unchecked. So there you go. I mean, diversity of browsers is very important to keeping the web healthy and making sure that everybody has a voice in the ecosystem as much as possible. 100% agree. (laughs) So thank you so much for using Firefox. It's always great to hear. Tell us what your work looks like then, because you magically on TC39, we're going to talk about some of the new things going on, the advancements of the SpiderMonkey team and all that you all have been up to. But I always get curious. I always ask open source developers, like, what does your day look like? Because it's kind of in their own hands. Of course, a SpiderMonkey team member, I don't know. I don't know what you do all day. What is it? Right. So I have an interesting role on SpiderMonkey because I also handle our engagement with the committee. So Part of my time, it can be an entire week, is dedicated to proposal reviews, so reading spec text. 
It's dedicated to opening issues on repositories about issues that have been found either by myself or other engineers on the SpiderMonkey team. If they haven't had time to sort of formulate the issue into an understandable form, then I will go and do that. Or it's also talking to other SpiderMonkey engineers and asking, what do you think about this proposal? Have you taken a look at it? Any concerns? If they've been working on it, I try to surface anything that they're unsure about to make sure that we communicate well with the committee. So that's one part of my work. Another part of my work is implementation. Uh, at the moment, my focus is not entirely in SpiderMonkey. I'm working on Gecko. Gecko is our DOM engine. So that's the embedder, in the case of Firefox, of the SpiderMonkey engine. So it takes care of like script loading, and that's specifically what I'm looking at. How do we load scripts and then execute scripts in the browser? And at the moment, the specific task I'm working on is looking at how we're loading modules, so JS modules, into workers. It's a feature we don't currently support, and support was added to it recently by JSC, and V8 has had it for a little while. So my day starts basically with turning on my build machine and staring at a blank screen for a bit while I gather up the courage <laughs> to open up a 2009 file and then start poking away and taking a look at what I can do that's reasonable, asking questions about, do I understand what's happening here? A lot of it is reading code and of course coding. That makes up a big chunk of my day, switching over in the latter half of the week, often to meetings. So a lot of coordination meetings that I mentioned earlier, assuming that they don't make up the whole week and stuff like that, generally what it looks like. Staring at code all day. That's like living the dream right there, you know? Keep those meetings away. Keep them away. Yeah, right. You also find time to live stream on Twitch, a, a few of the things you're doing. Yeah. You want to tell folks about your live stream and the kind of stuff that is on there? Yeah. So there's an interesting thing that's happening. So the live stream is on pause right now. But what the live stream was is on a bi-weekly and then monthly cadence. I had to slow it down a bit because of the attention that it took. What I would do is I would give a guided tour through how a specific complex feature was implemented in Firefox. I started off with what I thought was a small bug and I took people through everything. So you start at the spec text, reading spec text. How do you read spec text? It's a weird language that we use there. We've got like proper grammar. I don't know if all of the viewers are familiar what a language grammar is, but it's a way of writing out how a programming language's syntax is supposed to look. We call it a grammar. And then also, how do you read the semantics? So we walk through all of that, and then we go through, and in Firefox, we would implement it, test it, and then ship it. Right now, what the series is looking at is top-level await. It's a proposal I was involved in specifying. We just took it to stage four. Top-level await allows you to use await on the top level of a module scope, so without any function wrapping it. And we're implementing that from scratch as a guided tour and wow. reading all of the spec text associated with it. What's interesting about that proposal is you can see how much the specification diverges from an actual implementation and the kind of things that an implementation has to deal with, like performance and how we solve those things. So that's what that is. And it's on pause right now. It's going to come back probably in August or September. The reason it's on pause is I did do this meteoric rise in CS, but of course it didn't really stop there. And I'm in university now. I just started my master's. So mm. I've taken a bit of time off to acclimatize to doing both schooling and work. So that's why it's on pause, but it'll be back soon. And I'm really excited to show people how everything works, especially with my new knowledge of real computer science. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's super cool. I highly recommend people go back and get their master's like in the middle of their careers. I did the same thing and it was super fun. I think you're going to have a really good time. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Like doing a master's when you've already found what you enjoy doing. Like for me, compilers are just so cool. Languages are so cool. All of this stuff is amazing. So now I'm doing my master's specifically on that. And right now I'm in a software analysis class and I'm learning this stuff that I didn't know the words for. And I can directly apply it to what I'm working with. And like all of the things are connecting. And I feel like I have a much deeper understanding than I would have otherwise. It feels much more applied. So it's really cool. Yeah, when you learn certain things as an undergraduate, it's just so much schooling has already, you know, you're like getting, you know, four years of schooling without any real chance to meaningfully use what you're learning. And so at some point you just, I feel like you kind of get filled up with knowledge and it's actually beneficial to go out and use the knowledge. And then what happens is you run into situations where you hit the limit of your understanding. And at least for me, I was like, you know, ah, I don't have time to learn this thing right now, this big topic, but you know, one day I'll sit down and I'll learn how this works and it'll make my life easier next time I run into this situation. And when that happens for like the third or fourth time, and then you go back to your master's and you're finally exposed to that topic, you're like, oh my gosh, this is really important. I've run into this before. Now it's my chance to finally learn it. And you're like super eager about learning it. And you know that it's going to be really important. And then you remember it. It's just so much more like meaningful when you know that it's a thing that is actually important because you ran into it so many times before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool because everything connects right now. I'm going through some concepts that had I not known how a compiler works, and worked on one and been like, oh God, this is my day job. Then like coming to those mathematical concepts and being like, what is this? I would have had so much more trouble and I would have just sort of, you know, figured it out for the test and then forgotten about it. But now mm. it's like, no, this is my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's really That's cool. Nice. Yeah. I was just going to add that there's also a burnout of schooling, right? So I'm just thinking about my path. I could see this path that you guys are on being something that like would be attractive to me now. Whereas when I just graduated, I had just finished like 16 straight years of schooling or whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. Elementary up through university. I was just done. I'm like, I'm not going to go to school for my master's. I've just had enough schooling. And I feel like a lot of people, when they continue that path, they're just not sure what to do next. And they'd like to learn more than I did. I didn't really enjoy it all that much. But now that I've like had the gap and I've had, I guess... 15 years in industry, I could see where I have specific things that I enjoy and I could dive into, like you found, Yulia, with compilers. And I appreciate learning for learning's sake way more than I did back when I was in school because I had to learn because that's what people told me to do for 16 years, right? Mm-hmm. I could see that being like refreshing change of pace as opposed to just going like one thing after the other all the way through. I always looked at people that you know went from straight through grammar school up through their doctorate and like 20 years of school and I'm just like, I just couldn't relate to that, but I can relate to this sentiment. So I think that's an interesting thing. I think in general, schooling should be more of a a lifelong thing and we shouldn't compactify all of it to like the front of your life and then just stop at some point and then you just, you never step foot on university campus again. I think it should be more of like, I wish it was like you you could take a class, you know, uh, one class every semester or like one class every year. You just drop into something, you know to kind of enhance your knowledge throughout your career. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just not easily structured that way. It's like, you know, even when you want to go back to get your master's, you kind of have to like put your job on hold and then like, or take some time off to do it. <laughs> you're so, there like, I'm not putting my job on hold. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean though? You know what I mean? It's, it just takes a lot of time. It's like, you have to basically do it in like, in a concentrated. You have to put uh, your live stream dose. on hold. <laughs> it is hard. Like, so I'm doing a remote program that's famous for being the equivalent of its on campus program. And it is hard. It is really hard to do. I have definitely, uh, I haven't crammed 
in 10 years and now I'm cramming again and it's really intense. <laughs> and I'm only doing one class. So this thing that you mentioned dropping in for one semester and I'm thinking like if I had to do this for my entire life, I think, I think this would be very difficult. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> to each their own, I guess. So, so I, I'm doing exactly that right now. I've been thinking a lot about education because of course I'm interested as an educator. The reason that Compiler Compiler exists is because I think that compilers and computer science should be accessible to everyone. I think that this shouldn't be a scary piece of software to write. It should be something that it's like, oh yeah, I understand how that works. And I understand like the basic structure of it and how it's built and what it means. And I could do it rather than, oh, I'm someone who only knows how to write JavaScript applications. And this world is blocked off for me. Part of the reason why I kept digging was because I felt like that. I was like, oh, I don't know how compilers work. Like I need to really work if I want to learn how the compiler works. And it's true. You do have to really work to learn how that thing works, but it's accessible. And I think how we do education determines whether or not people think that they can take on these complex topics. One thing that was really inspiring for me was watching Dan Abramov's series on React. And he made a number of topics that could have been explained in a very complex manner, very approachable to someone who was rather new to programming. So that was early on in my career as a computer programmer. Hmm. I think that's very important. And I have a lot of comments about university style education, like exams. Oh my God, <laughs> why do they exist? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of understand it, but at the same time, I, as someone who's studying for the sake of studying and not for the sake of accreditation, I feel like exams are sort of this arbitrary bar that's put in place, quizzes, exams, and all this kind of stuff that I don't actually learn all that much from, and they mostly cause stress. And I feel like I learn a lot more from like digging into a book and like doing the exercises and then talking to people and making sure that my ideas about a problem are correct rather than sitting down and like having a test. So I don't like tests. Yeah, going back to school at this stage in your career really uh, highlights all the things about school that are just weird that you don't realize when you're when you're in it the first right. time. Yeah, exams are one of those for sure. And I think they're pretty helpful for people who would otherwise not do the work. It's sort of like a, you know, like when you have a deadline coming up and you finally do the thing that you've been procrastinating on, like that's the purpose it mainly serves for people. And then, I mean, there's, a, I guess there's the, the whole like evaluation aspect of it. But I, I even, I question whether that's actually what the university is after with it. Anyway, yeah, it's just interesting. It's definitely an interesting perspective to go back. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Well, we might get stuck talking about school this whole yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can we can move on. Let me ask one question that's somewhat on topic but off topic, which is you found that you're fascinated and excited about compilers. And I'm wondering if you've thought about that analytically, like why? You know, because people get excited about different things and like somebody really loves baseball. And you're like, if you ask them, why do you love baseball? Maybe they thought about it, maybe they haven't. But have you thought about that? What is it about compilers that really gets you going? That's a great question. So actually, there's two things that I'm really fascinated. Well, three things, which I consider to be some of the most important parts of a process that I would call language design. So language design, you might think of it as the process of figuring out the formal specification of a language and how it works. And what are the proofs behind it that a language is correct and does the right thing? And that it's sound, for example, with type systems and whatnot. But there are like lots of different parts to language design. So soundness is one part of it. Then there is formal aspects, the observational aspects, like how does the language perform? Is it fast for certain tasks? Is it good for concurrency? Then there's another part to it, which is how does the programming language impact the people who write programs with that programming language? And how can 
a representation of a programming language impact how people solve problems. Really interesting example of that is the programming language R, which a statistician can pick up in about an hour and become productive in. Another excellent example of an interesting programming language that impacts how people model problems is Excel. JavaScript is another interesting programming language that models how beginners enter into the field of programming and then start immediately doing something that works. And then there's a final aspect to it, which is how do we collectively design languages? How do we determine what the problems a language is trying to solve are and come to an agreement about that? So that's the committee work. So those are the pieces that I'm interested in. And actually working on a compiler allows me to stretch that whole area of language design that I just mentioned to you. So I get to go all the way from the nitty gritty stuff about like, how is it performing? How is it built? Is it right? Is it what we want it to do? Are the semantics correct? And then we can look at syntax and be like, okay, for programmers, how are they reading this code? And are they coming to the right models in their minds about what it's supposed to do? I find that really, really interesting. And then finally, we get into this, how do we make decisions as a group? And I find that when I say that I'm a compiler engineer, I actually see it as encompassing this whole realm and not just the technical aspects of the work. And it's a really cool place to work. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Micro. Micro, aka M3O, is a new cloud platform built for developers by developers. Our good friend, Asim Aslam, is leading this. And if you're tired of AWS and feeling overwhelmed by the cloud, infinite billing, and an endless sea of docs, it is time for a change. The Micro team is reimagining the cloud for the next generation. M3O is a new developer-friendly platform to explore, search, and use simpler APIs for everyday consumption all in one place. Get access to the APIs you need in one click and test them right there on the web before using them. Simple, fast, and affordable. You won't get burned by bottomless billing. You top up your account and pay as you go. And right now, they're in early development and building out the first set of APIs and they're looking for feedback from developers. Sign up and get $5 in free credits. Kick the tires, give them your input so they can build the best APIs you want to use every single day. Learn more at m3o.com. Again, m3o.com. One thing that you and the spider monkey team works on is developing features not in a silo but alongside other people who are developing the same features and then debating how those features could look and then approving which ones are good which ones are not good which ones need to be changed are we implementing are we not implementing when all of these things like you said a lot of it is the communication and the humanity side which is a fun challenge i believe so you've had a lot of interaction with tc39 on your work with SpiderMonkey, and including recently top level weights, a thing that's been, I guess, approved or ratified, I don't know, I don't know the language, and is going into the browsers. And so that's like a, a big feature that a lot of people have been waiting for and are excited about. Maybe tell us the top level weight a story, and we'll use that as kind of a view into how TC39 works. Okay. I don't know if I remember all of the details of how top level weight evolved, but I can try to take you through sort of our pet feature, we can call it foo, or we can take top level weight as that example and just walk through the journey of someone's got an idea and then it turns into a full-blown feature. Okay. So let's say 
anybody, like for example, Feroz or Jared, either one of you could come up with an idea, just any idea, and say, hmm, it would be really great if this was in JavaScript. What you would do then is you would go to our discourse, the TC39 discourse. It's discourse.tc39.es. If I'm wrong, go to the TC39 website, which is tc39.es, and then take a look at how to get involved or the community side. And the discourse is listed there, also in the footer. We have an area in the discourse for posting your great new idea and getting feedback from delegates about whether or not that should be included in the language or what they think about it or where we've tried something like that before and it failed or where they see inherent flaws in it or it might just be picked up. What we call this idea of yours, we have a name for it, is called stage zero or the straw person proposal. And it can be really anything. Now, to get it to stage one, we have a four-stage process. Stage zero is just any idea on the internet. Usually we know about it. Sometimes we don't, like things are floating around. You can create an example repository of your idea using the TC39 proposal template on GitHub. You just create a repo based off of that template, and there you go. You've got your first stage zero proposal. You've discussed it with people in discourse. And ideally, someone on discourse who is a TC39 delegate has come along and said, that's a great idea. I want to take that to committee. And you get to be a part of that whole process from that point on. So in that case, you take the role of the author and the TC39 delegate who's adopted your proposal will be your champion, the champion for your idea within the context of committee. That idea is taken to committee and presented for stage one. So it goes onto the agenda. Right now we meet eight times a year and we discuss it in something called plenary for about half an hour to an hour. And people will say, oh, this is a terrible idea. We should never do it. Usually nobody says that for a stage one proposal. We try to bring ideas in. It's our siphon for like, what's the internet thinking about? And in general, we consider uh, proposals entering stage one as problem statements. So if we take, for example, top level await, and you read the top level await proposal repo, we have this section there called the motivation. And the motivation is stating the problem that top level await is trying to solve. Stage one is really like, what is this thing? What's wrong? And later, how do we solve it? So the solution and the problem are bundled together. Like this is still something we're figuring out. Like how do we separate those two so we can really discuss the problems in isolation and understand them fully before we go forward with the solution? Right now, they're sort of like tightly coupled. So if we read the motivation section of top level weight, the motivation there is that the syntax overhead for doing something that will allow you to pause at the top level of a module is really, really painful. Syntactically, it's buggy and like people have tried all different ways to get around this, but it's just not great. So that's the motivation for top level weight. And I think between stage one and stage two, so stage one is we've accepted the problem go ahead and investigate it and come up with the best solution that you can given the information that you have. So figure out what the spec should kind of look like, figure out what kind of initial problem areas exist, figure out what the solution should look like. And that's how we ended up with top level await having just the await keyword before whatever you're awaiting. There were other solutions for top level weight. Uh. One of them was to say that the module, you mark the module that you're importing as async. That's another way to do it. Right now, it's implicit that something is synchronous, but we had an idea of it being implicit. And there are still ideas around this floating around in committee that we've been discussing recently. So now you want to take your proposal, 
whatever it is, to stage two. By stage two, you should have a complete idea of what the API should look like for that proposal. You should have a good argument about how it solves the problem that you want to solve. And you should already have a spec text ready. Stage two is about ironing out the problems, ensuring that we haven't missed anything. So this is sort of like the draft process. We're drafting the final spec text. We're figuring out everything that we can before we start implementing the proposal fully in browsers. That may also come with a polyfill. Maybe one browser or another browser, when they think that the idea is really good, they might implement it early at stage two or not. So that's what the draft stage is for. And then we move into stage three, which is where I usually get deeply involved. Like, for example, the transition from stage two to stage three is very hard. We want to make sure that we don't miss anything that could potentially be a problem going into stage three that we can foresee before we have to implement the work. Because when we're talking about implementing a proposal, for example, top level await took six months to implement. Most browsers were around the area of six months of engineering time to implement it into a given browser. And these things can even be more work, like they can be a year of work, multiple engineers working on it. So we have to be really careful before we invest that kind of work that we're not giving a specification that's inherently buggy. Although, you know, sometimes you miss things and we have to roll back. So the stages don't just move in a forward direction, they sometimes loop back. So for example, one example is we just had a regular expression group indices move forward to stage four. That was stuck at stage three for a long time. It didn't actually get rolled back. It's details, like we've had stuff rolled sure. back when we've had inherent problems between proposals that we didn't foresee. So we had these two proposals in stage three and one of them had to be rolled back because it turned out that that was the one that needed to be fixed in order for it to move back up the stages to stage three. So something like that can happen. Or we may end up re-questioning whether or not the grounds for the proposal were appropriate and then moving it back up. Another important detail is that there's disagreements about this, but committee doesn't really reject proposals. So let's say something's going through the stages and you're like, oh God, oh God, this should never go into JavaScript and you're really worried about it. One thing to pay attention to is if the proposal has been blocked and hasn't been progressing. We don't generally formally reject ideas. We keep a record of everything that we've tried so that, you know, next time, like maybe someone comes along in 10 years and is like, hey, that thing that you thought was a bad idea, actually, we have a really important use case for that now. And then we can pick up work from that proposal and use it as a historical base for future work. That's cool. So, yeah, we, it's a very long, complicated yeah. process. I'll try to keep it shorter. And then finally, stage four is spec. We're in spec. So that's where top level await just made that jump. We went from stage three to stage four last meeting. So what do you do in the case of competing ideas around implementation or API. So you mentioned the implicit await versus the explicit. Were those two different proposals or was there one proposal and then people debating how to go about that proposal? And then how does the decision come out? Is there a vote? Is there, how does that work? So we do both things actually. We debate within the context of a single proposal. And sometimes we also have forks of the proposal, which show competing ideas about how this thing could be implemented. Mm -hmm. Now, the most famous fork we call it the back pocket solution. The most famous fork of a proposal was ES5. So perhaps you recall ES4, this specification that we worked on for 10 years. And you know, you go from ES3 directly to ES5. Why did that happen? Because ES4 was developed over 10 years and then implementers took a look at that and said, this isn't implementable. We can't do it, it's too much. It had doubled the size of the specification. We couldn't implement it. 
So what happened is a group of delegates sort of sprung off and sort of like started taking pieces of this uh, massive specification and were like, okay, these pieces make sense as an incremental improvement that is scoped and can be implemented. I think it was ES3 point something. It was this bridge, ES3.5, something like this. It was this bridge specification before we made the jump to five and we completely skipped ES4. So that's a, a, the most famous example of the back pocket proposal. We had also back pocket proposals come up for private fields, which was rather contentious. But what's interesting is those back pocket proposals were always like, oh, there are, there's this specific problem with our current solution to the private fields problem. We propose that we do it this way instead. But every time that we got into debate, we would compare the two and discuss whether or not this second idea was a valid, better solution than the initial idea. And we always came back that that initial idea was the better one. So we went through this process of deciding like which one really fully covers the problem space. And that's how we ended up going with private fields the way that it was designed. Hmm. We also have people in committee who are protecting things that are intrinsic features of the language that could potentially disappear if we didn't protect them. One famous example is polyfillable implementations. Can we polyfill this thing? For example, had we specified modules a little bit differently, then you wouldn't be able to inject code so that it would run before the module ran. Polyfilling like, let's say a browser had the wrong implementation of promise, you wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to fix that implementation of promise because if we designed the module system in a specific way, then the modules would run before you're polyfilled it. So that's one example of sort of a critical idea to the JavaScript language that that needs to be possible that we try to maintain. And these kind of features of the language, they're a little bit strange. They're not all written down. So some of our decisions might look a little bit like, why did you decide to do that in that way? Oftentimes it's because we're protecting certain features of the language so that they're still possible. So certain applications remain possible as we evolve the language. That's interesting. So you should have some sort of a, I would think there'd be a list, you know, like the 10 commandments of JavaScript features, like thou shalt be polyfillable. It sounds like a pretty good guiding principle of like, hey, if your proposal is not polyfillable, well, it's not going to get accepted. Does that not exist anywhere? Is that just in the psyches of the committee or? At the moment, it's sort of held near and dear to different delegates, like different delegates maintain certain values about the language that they protect. Mm -hmm. So the, there's a real risk. And this is why the question of how do we design as a group is so important. This is why this is the fourth tier of language design in my mind, is because we need to be able to make these decisions effectively, considering all of the values that are represented by this cross-section of people. And it's also a little bit arbitrary, right? Because we have specific people on the committee. We don't have the entire planet on the committee. We wouldn't be able to handle that amount of information. But the people who are on the committee do care a lot, and they're largely volunteers, and they have been with the language for a long time. To mediate for this, you know, it's the bus problem. Like, if one of us gets hit by a bus, then, like, we won't necessarily pay attention to everything about the language. To mediate that, we've started a new project, which is writing down the intrinsics and making them a part of the normative text of the specification. What does normative mean? Normative means that it impacts the implementations, and it's a much stronger guarantee than another part of the specification, which we call prose, which is explanatory text around the specification that does not impact the implementations. Hmm. So that's one mediation that we have upcoming that should eventually come into fruition. And we will have a list of things that we think about when we design the language. 
So how big is the committee? Well, I don't know exactly how many members. So members are companies. I don't know exactly how many members we are because the members belong to ECMA, which is the standards body that we're a part of, ECMA International. And at committee, we usually have between 40 and 80 people present. And in the case of a contentious proposal, does it just end up going to a vote or how do you resolve conflict? We have to all agree. Unanimous. So this is an unusual thing. It's a unanimous agreement not to block. So not everyone is necessarily happy with the proposal, but they all accept it in the current form that it goes forward in. So that's 80 people have to say that they won't say no. That sets itself up for a filibuster, doesn't it? You got one stuck member that's just like, that's a lot of power in the hands of one member. No, I'm going to block. Yeah. It's a lot of power in one member. So then that person, that entity, just has to be convinced? Is that how it works? Yes. Why does it work that way? Excellent question. It works this way because the committee used to be smaller. It was like 12 people. Mm. And at the time, this is when ES5 and ES6 were being developed. At the time, it was a system that made sense. But as you probably know from other political systems, once you have such a system, it's very difficult to move away from it. That said... It has saved our skin a couple of times. One example is observables. This was a popular feature proposal. A lot of JavaScript developers liked it a lot. And there was one person who said no. And they said no after... The other thing is like committee work isn't free. Like we spend a lot of our lives thinking about these programming language features and how are we going to implement them and how should they be spec? So it's a lot of work that you're saying no to. There's a lot of social pressure to not say no. And one person said no. And they completely stopped further discussion on that proposal. They said no. And then one thing that we're encouraging now, if you read the proposal document today, we have an important document around how we make decisions. It's called the proposal document. It tells you how to block in an effective and productive way, because just saying no isn't very good because it doesn't lead us anywhere. I think one important aspect of that document is that it says when you say no, you have to give a reason so that we can learn from why a proposal failed. So going back to the story about observables, one person said no, everybody was mad for a while. And then like three years later, people were like, oh, thank God we didn't do observables. That guy was totally right. We should not have done it for exactly the reason that he said. So it's an interesting process. I think one of the big reasons why it's working for us is that we have a lot of people participating in good faith. People want JavaScript to succeed. They want it to be a good language. They aren't blocking just to be difficult. Mm -hmm. I would imagine there could be situations where you have members that are not acting in good faith, or maybe not not just not in good faith, but in their own interests. So like if you have members who represent Apple and you have members that represent Google, those two entities could be at odds. And so maybe they Mm -hmm. have corporate reasons for certain features working certain ways or doing this and not doing that. Ultimately, they have to implement it into their browsers anyway, so they could also, I guess, hold out on that aspect. But to me, it's just fascinating. And I appreciate all the work that y'all do because us regular JavaScript developers, like, I never think about this stuff. I never thought how much, for lack of a better word, political machinations go into deciding like how I wrap my regex, right? Or how I import a module. Like, There's a lot of thought and debate and politicking in the sense of like dialogue that goes into these things for us. Do you ever think about this? I guess every once in a while when we have someone on the show, I think about it, but not very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about it sometimes, but most of the time I'm, I don't have as much time as I'd like to devote yeah. to looking into this stuff. So I just kind of 
learn about things when someone writes a nice blog post about them that explains <laughs> yeah, exactly. how they work. Uh, exactly. And, you know, sometimes I, I get involved earlier when there's like something that the language is, just feels like it's missing and then I'm looking for some solution. But this usually happens more with like web features, you know, so kind of outside of the realm of ECMA, but it'd be more like I'll find some browser proposal that I'll get involved earlier with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Less so in the, in the you know, JS in the language. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's also very interesting is how different HTML standard is compared to uh, ECMA Mm. in terms of its governance. And you'll also find like different standards bodies have a very different governance structure and you end up having different conversations as a result. That's very interesting to me. And thinking about like, how do we best come to those decisions? Just very interesting area. I just think a study of those, like a meta study of here are N organizations that do standards in technology space and based on these criteria, actually, this way of going about it is better than that way for these reasons. Like when it comes time for you to pick your governance model for your foundation or whatever it is for your specification, you can say, actually, the way these people are doing it for these you know, scientific criteria that I can't make up off the top of my head, this is a good way of going about it. Maybe the 100% unanimous thing is like makes total sense in practice or its pros are more than its cons, and so that'd be a good one to adopt. Or maybe it's actually slowing y'all down and HTML folks do it better, and that would be a smarter way of doing it. I think maybe those things exist, and this is just a world that I don't live in, but that would be cool. You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because there is a study of how people make decisions. Okay. And it's called argumentation theory. It's basically the study of how rhetoric really works in large-scale discussions. And when I started looking at this, I was like, oh, okay, cool, rationale design. So like lots of languages have rationales. How are they designed? But then also discovering programs that can determine the rationale for how a certain decision was reached. Those also exist. And then there's people studying this and writing philosophical texts about how decisions are made, what kinds of arguments have weight, which ones influence a discussion but maybe aren't correct is an other really, really interesting study. And in fact, part of what I want to do as my master's work. So we have a professor who specializes in that and I've been in touch with him a little bit. I'm hoping to convince him to to take me on. Use your argumentation theory in order to convince him. What were you going to say for us? One thing I'm curious about that just came to mind is how would you say that your perspective differs from some of the other members? I don't know if, if you represent, you know, just sort of, I'm guessing you also represent, you know, Spider Monkey or Mozilla's position for the other people you're bringing the sort of opinion of the organization to the group. How would you say that like your or Mozilla's perspective differs? And like what, mm-hmm. what sorts of proposals do you find yourself sort of frequently at odds with or more in favor of? It's a fantastic question. So that actually brings us back to something that Jared said earlier about, let's say you've got Google and Apple arguing over something. One thing that happens pretty often is you have the browser space sort of saying like, this is an important feature for us. And then other embedders of JavaScript being like, well, actually we have other concerns. We had a really interesting discussion recently. So there's two discussions I'll bring up. The first one is around realms. I don't know if you've heard of the proposal. So probably everyone's worked with iframes and you know that you can pass information from the parent document into the iframe. You can actually pass objects directly in between those two documents. What realms are is realms give you the ability to create a global, a separate JavaScript global without creating a document to embed it in. What you can do with the JavaScript in an iframe without having the iframe wrapping it. And one thing that was important from the browser's perspective is that you couldn't arbitrarily pass objects 
between these two things. This was something that was viewed as a mistake in the world of iframes. Now, for other environments such as Node, this was like, well, no, this is something that we do want to do. This is a really nice way to program. We want to be able to pass objects unwrapped. So that was one place where we said, no, we can't do it like that. Additionally, we also said that the JavaScript space, what we specify in ECMA, shouldn't be kept separate from the HTML APIs that are provided into JavaScript. So for example, fetch, or maybe something like B2A or A2B APIs that, I forget, one of them's in JavaScript, one of them's in HTML. And as a JavaScript developer, you shouldn't need to know which standards body specified something in order to be able to use it. So one requirement we had for Realms as well was that we consider a few HTML APIs that should also be wrapped in the Realms proposal. So that's one example where we took a strong position and that shows also the browser interest. This is a common thing that we take. Like we say that JavaScript should still be coherent with the web. And that influences things for places that are not involving themselves in the web, like embedded JavaScript running on tiny microchips. Uh, they don't care about that stuff, but we do. So huh. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. As a web browser influencer, you're going to have opinions on that. Yeah. yeah. Realms is a really cool proposal. I'm looking really mm -hmm. looking forward to that. Kind of want to build some stuff with it. And it's uh, mm -hmm. really cool. By the way, when is that going to be? When do you think that's going to be something that we can play with? <laughs> <laughs> can we get an ETA on our favorite yeah. features? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I think you may be able to play with it already. Like uh, you can work with the SES polyfill that allows you to do some of the stuff that Realms promises to be able to do. Or if you want, you can like grab the Firefox browser and try playing around with the compartments that we have, which is essentially the Realms proposal, because we do have something that allows us to generate JavaScript globals without having a document, but it's all internal browser APIs. Like mm -hmm. we're really happy to expose that. And actually the direction that the Realms proposal has taken now, isolated Realms, is something we're very happy with because it not only maintains the restrictions that we represented as browsers, it also follows some of the design principles that HTML has, which is that APIs like this should be async. So we're really happy with that new proposal and we're really hoping that it moves forward because we think it's a good solution. Not everyone agrees with us. So mm. hard to say. We thought it might move forward in the last meeting, but it didn't. So there's more to discuss and more to figure out there. So what practical things, either of you could answer this, would Realms unlock that I couldn't do today? Why are you excited for us? Well, I'm excited by the idea that we could have better permissioning for different packages and modules within an app. So like right now, whenever you install something from NPM, you include it in your Node.js app and it can do anything that your code can do. Mm -hmm. There's no way to sort of say like, you know, this module is just, it's a pure function. It's just computing something based on its inputs, giving me an output, it shouldn't really need to, the ability to talk to the network or to read files off my file system. I want to be able to just run this module in like a purely isolated environment where I can restrict it from doing anything I don't want it to do. And I think, you know, Realms would enable that. I mean, obviously you'd need to build some tooling on top of it to make it actually easy for people to use it because I think the API, when I last looked at it, was pretty low level. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's a really cool idea. And I could see that paving the way for a world where you have almost like smartphone style permissions. When you, you know, when you install an app for the first time on your phone, it says, hey, I would like to use the camera or hey, I would like to use the microphone. I, when I install a package from NPM, it would be cool if I had to opt into the permissions that it wants. And if it tried to change those permissions, if, you know, someone published a patch version, you know, and they suddenly it's reading files off my disk mm -hmm. uh, and where it wasn't before, you know, I feel like that's the thing where you'd want it to really be a red flag, either 
it should fail or it should effectively prompt the user for permission in some way, the developer. When I say prompt, I don't mean literally a pop-up <laughs> running in your node app, but something where you have like a configuration file that sort of grants permissions to different packages. There's actually some cool work in this area right now with a project called Lavamote. They're probably using the shim that you mentioned, Yulia, because I guess, yeah, you can use it today in Node, but it's, I guess it would be better if it was using real realms. I'm not so sure. I haven't looked mm -hmm. too in depth into it, but it's called Lava yeah. Mode if people are interested in looking at it. Yeah. Another thing that people can look up is compartments. Realms is the underlying proposal that will allow compartments to exist, which is the thing that will say this realm can have access to these pieces. And here you go, this realm, and go and do stuff. Realms is a fantastic way to do encapsulation of certain types of logic, in particular to keep the integrity of a program running as you expect. One thing that Realms will not give you, and this is a, another place where browsers have a very strong opinion, it's security. So a Realm will not be a full sandbox that will protect your code because of Spectre. So anything that can take advantage of Spectre is immediately insecure, and Realms doesn't run in a separate process. So the only way you would be able to get full security is if you have it running in a separate process, just because of this massive vulnerability that came up. But realms are still very useful for this integrity question and encapsulation. For example, if you want to run a set of tests, you can run your test suite inside of a realm, and you can run the program that you're testing separately. So that's a really interesting application of realms. And of course, there is the compartments proposal, which will allow you to say, okay, this should only have access to fetch, time, and some other things. And then otherwise, it can't automatically access things accidentally. So it just won't have access to the time API, for example. Mm -hmm. It can still escape the box, but it's a little bit more contained, a little bit more controlled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. It sounds like you shouldn't run outright malicious code inside of a realm and rely on yes. it. <laughs> but if you're running something where... I mean, I still think if I were to install a malicious NPM package by accident because it got compromised, I would be much happier having it run in a realm than yeah. having it run randomly on my computer, being able to access all of the core node APIs and, you know, reading files and child process.execing things. <laughs> totally. Is that fair or am I thinking about it wrong? <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I don't want you to have the wrong model to think that it'll actually protect you because the best way to make sure that that is properly sandboxed is by running it in a separate process that doesn't have access to everything. So that's the best guarantee that it won't escape the sandbox. But if, say, you're downloading an NPM library and you're like, not really sure if you trust them, how they've used all of the APIs correctly. Not that they're actively malicious, but maybe they've made some small mistake. Not everything blows up, for example. For example, they won't polyfill your array object to do the wrong thing suddenly, mm. which would suck. You have your own copy of the array object outside of that realm running in the parent realm, and you can use that instead. But if you have a malicious code running in a realm and it's written in a time when realms exist and it knows how to escape realms, it will be able to escape realms. And escaping a realm in this case means running code like in the outside of the realm, not just yeah. like leaking some information. Mm -hmm. oh, um, okay. Yeah, it's just that realms are not a strong security boundary. Uh, right now, I, I'm not very confident in what I'm saying because I haven't looked at realms for a while. But the thing that's sort of like being like, mm, one thing you, can, you should keep in mind is it's not a strong security boundary. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's more of an integrity boundary, which is another way to think about security, right? Like the definition of security has multiple facets to it. And integrity is an important one. And that's what it gives you. Yeah. Cool. I could ask you more and more questions all day about realms, but I will, hold, I will refrain <laughs> myself. <laughs>
It's a cool proposal. Yeah. yeah, it is a very cool proposal. I'm not an expert on it, actually. The best people to talk about it are the champions. So, Well, I found the compartment proposal. We'll get the realms proposal and lava moat in the show notes for those who want to do their own research. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build, view, and send HTTP requests they call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account signup page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now. So many of us are just building apps for the browser, using the browser to live our lives. We don't really understand exactly how it works. We know that SpiderMonkey is a part of Firefox. You mentioned Gecko. We understand that V8's inside of Chromium-based things. And SpiderMonkey, you can embed in a bunch of stuff. But let's take Firefox, for example. When I load a web page, let's say I load hag.codes, and Firefox does its thing. Can you explain, at least to some level of granularity, how it all fits together? Like, where is Firefox interacting with your work, for example? So I won't be able to answer this fully, but I can answer it to the best of my ability and get to the point where I start to understand things well, which is the script loader. So my understanding, my mental model of what the browser is doing is you type your URL into the URL bar and you press enter. And when you press enter, that string is taken and put into our network handling component. I think it's Neko, which is the thing that goes and retrieves the information from the web. It like goes and makes the requests using TCP. And then it's like, go and get me this information. And then it starts getting a stream of information in and packing it together. And then once it's packed together, something that looks like an HTML page. And I think we don't even wait for the entire HTML page to load. We start parsing it earlier and like incrementally building it because HTML is very permissive. So this is how I imagine we're doing it. And you're loading your HTML. And as you're loading the HTML and parsing it, you're building up a representation called the DOM which is the document object model. And in the DOM, you eventually hit something that's a script tag. Once you hit a script tag, depending on how it's being loaded, it might be loaded as async or deferred. And also the type of script that you're loading, the script loader will be called and do slightly different things. The script loader will get the request and be told, here's the script that you need to go and fetch. It will go and open a channel to fetch the things from the network. So this is gonna be your next network request. And the stream will come in and we will pack those bytes until we have a file that we can represent. And once we have the file that we can represent, we then take that. And I don't know the exact 
switch that happens here, but we usually try to parse things off the main thread. We delegate it to some other thread and then it takes care of the parsing and then it takes care of getting it all ready for it to be run. Once it's ready to be run, we execute the script. And depending on how you've written your HTML page, the document onload will fire before or after the script has been finished executing. So depending on if you've got a regular JavaScript script, this is what will happen. So this is the regular flow, as I understand it. Then if you've got a module flow, it's a little bit different. So what happens when you've got a module that you're loading, what'll happen is it'll encounter the script tag and the script tag will say that it's a module or it'll encounter a normal script and find inside of there a dynamic import. And once that happens, that triggers a slightly different process where you'll go and you'll fetch the script and get it and then parse it and be like, okay, now I've got a module and that module will have a different representation, which is a list of other scripts that I want to load. And immediately your browser will go and fetch those other scripts, all of them. So the entire module tree will be fetched and parsed ahead of time. Then once everything is ready, we start evaluating everything. Now in classic scripts, you'll evaluate from the top down. In modules, you will evaluate from the innermost module back to the root module. And this is maintained even in uh, top level await, where all the modules are transformed from synchronous code into asynchronous code. So each module is represented as a promise, which we evaluate one after the other. In one case, you're interacting with the promise machinery. In the other case, you're interacting with regular machinery. And yeah, and then you load the innermost module, then go out like Matryoshka doll. And then you've got your complete application running, probably in a loop, doing stuff, listening for events, stuff like that. All right. So that's a very good explanation. I definitely appreciate it. At which point in that does the spider monkey engine engage? Is it merely on here's a block of execute this code or is it also in the module loading and, and Russian dolling effect? Right. So there's a really interesting thing about how the spec actually dictates how the engine also interacts with the host that it's in. Yeah. These are called host hooks. So exactly what you said, that second point, the engine is engaged. SpiderMonkey gets called at the point where we're ready to parse. So SpiderMonkey takes care of all of the parsing and it takes care of all of the execution side of things. Okay. But for example, with modules, like with scripts, you can more closely couple those. You can like parse it and like, you know, do whatever work. And then like you can evaluate it, but you can also do them one after the other immediately. With modules, you can't necessarily do that. You need to first fetch everything and do that as part of the fetch step. And in order to fetch everything, you need to parse. So you need to both fetch and parse all of the scripts. And then you can separate evaluation from that. I have a proposal around this because one of the issues around modules is that the number of network requests you need to do to load an entire module tree can impact your app's startup performance pretty significantly. That parsing and fetching chunk can take up about half the execution time of the module. So one of the thoughts was, can we completely decouple these two parts of module loading? So that first part is handled by SpiderMonkey. SpiderMonkey is called by the script loader to go and do this work, the parsing, the fetching, and the linking of all the modules together. And then SpiderMonkey is later called to do the evaluation work. So it's sort of like all of these things sort of like linked together. And what SpiderMonkey does is after it's parsed the modules, it actually calls back into the host the script loader, and tells the script loader to then go and do the fetch. So these two things are sort of like hooking into each other. Okay. In this way. Now I know my, my website's so slow. There's so much to do. I mean, <laughs> the amount of complexity and depth to this 
is mm -hmm. somewhat overwhelming in the sense of when you really think about it. And we take it for granted because, I mean, I joke about my websites being slow, but it's really, it happens all so fast, you know? It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. In some cases, like, you know, we might be able to improve module load performance without doing deferred module evaluation. Like there is a gulf between the common JS module era and where we are today in that a number of common JS modules cannot be directly translated into ESMs. And that's one of the problems that I want to solve at some point, because we have a similar problem. We have an early adopted module system that doesn't actually work for the web. You might ask, why doesn't it work for the web? So I mentioned that loading modules while running scripts is something we can't do. The reason we can't do this is if we run asynchronous code during synchronous code, we have to block the main thread. That's something we never want to do on the web because then things lock up. That's a bad user experience. That's why we want all of our APIs to be async. It should all be delegated to go and be done at a later point in time. So we can't do what CommonJS, the original CommonJS implementation did, which is block until the request finishes and comes back and then continue executing. So that's a unique problem where if you want to transition from CommonJS into ESMs, you end up rewriting a lot of your code as async. And that can be hard to look at and hard to reason about. Tell us more about this proposal you have and maybe its process. This might tie together both subjects now because we have your own personal proposal. This ties into SpiderMonkey's work and Firefox's needs. And it's kind of a stage one or maybe it's on ice. What's the status? And maybe like tell us the story mm -hmm. about it, this deferred module loading thing or execution. So deferred module evaluation will give developers the ability to say that they don't want the module to execute until it's needed. So, for example, on first use, let's say you've got a module graph that you want to load and it all gets fetched and it's ready for you, but you can select certain modules and say, I don't want them to run yet. I want them only to run if I actually use them. Uh, for example, if someone clicks a button on your React page, someone clicks that button and you want to load in another component and you don't want to load all of that, run all of that code ahead of time, you want to run it later. And, you know, there are other optimizations for this. This is sort of a simple example of this. One way to do that is I think React now has a way to hide the asynchronous nature of this fetch so that it looks like it's synchronous code, but it isn't actually synchronous code. I think they use errors, error catching in order to do that. It's a really interesting approach that they took, algebraic effects. But it also shows that this is a problem and developers are having a hard time reasoning about this asynchronous code, which is a complexity of the web platform that isn't their fault and isn't actually logic in their program. It's logic about the web. And the question is, how do we remove that complexity so that it's easier to program for the web without having to do asynchronous code when you don't intend to do asynchronous work? And deferred module evaluation is one stab at it. There is another way to do this, which is by exposing the module loader itself and allowing programmers to write their own module loaders with their own logic around module loading. So you could, for example, re-implement a common JS loader that has the same concepts as CommonJS, but it takes into account the asynchronous nature of the web and allow people to program as they would and then handle that stuff within the loader. So that's one way we could do that by exposing the loader. And then a deferred module evaluation does that automatically for you. It's an opinionated approach to it. Not everybody would be necessarily happy with that. Not everybody already is happy with that. So we might take a slightly different approach. It is a little bit on ice right now because I am working on revamping the module loading in Firefox so we can do it for workers as well. So until I figure that out, because it also impacts our internal project, 
which is reworking our internal module loader so that it can do the same stuff, it might in turn influence that proposal. And then we could bring this research into the open web and allow people to use it as well. Huh. Well, I can't give any opinions on your solution, but I can tell you that your problem is on point. Like your problem <laughs> statement is 100% valid with this guy. And I would definitely appreciate ways of, I guess, papering over. Maybe that's a pejorative. I don't mean it in a negative light, but like solving that problem of this impedance mismatch between async and sync and the mindset of the developer causes lots of slowdowns in development cycles and bugs. And there's yep. lots of education that has to happen because of it, where if we could solve that problem in an elegant way, that would be a huge boon to all of us. Yeah. I think this is where we come to the sort of like third phase of development. Sorry, not development, language design. We've talked quite a bit about decision-making as a group, as an aspect mm -hmm. of language design. And now we're talking a little bit about the mental model, how a language's design will impact how people model problems. And one of the parts of that is how much do you expose of the complexities of the domain in which you're working to the programmer so that they can work with it directly? And how much of it do you hide so that they can work more efficiently with the domain that they're interested in representing through code? And I think that's a really important problem. And in some cases, we want to give lower level tools. In other cases, we want to give higher level tools. And in some ways, this aspect of the web, the asynchronicity of the web by requirement, if we can do that by design, would be really interesting, I think, for developers and make it easier for them to work with their chosen domain, the one that they're trying to implement. Fascinating stuff, Yulia. Hey, you are welcome back on JS Party anytime. I've learned a lot today. You're very bright. You're very good at explaining things to people with lower capacities like myself. Honestly, please come back. Maybe we'll have you back to talk a full episode on realms. Maybe bring somebody from the committee who's a, what is it, a champion, a realms champ. Yeah, we should get a realms champ on here. Yeah, we should. We'll bring our realms champ. It's for us. He'll be on our side. You bring your champion, we'll bring ours. And we can, have a, <laughs> we can have a proper realms conversation with a little less hand-waving than the three of us had to do. Uh, that would be really fun. But best of luck to you on your masters and all you're doing. I hope you get your live stream back up. And appreciate all the work that you and everybody at Mozilla does on SpiderMonkey and on Firefox. This is important work and you're pushing the web forward and you're doing it in like this group, like thinking of everybody, best idea wins way, which ultimately means we all win. So we appreciate your efforts on that front as well. For us, thanks for being here. Thanks for hanging with us. Mm -hmm. That's our show for this week. Thanks a lot, Yulia. Thank you both for having me here. I had a lot of fun. I hope we can do it sometime again. That was great. We absolutely can. All right, that's our show and we'll talk to everybody next week. Thank you for listening to JS Party. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at jsparty.fm or in your favorite podcast app. Just search for JS Party, you'll find us. And if you enjoy the show, please send it to a friend or a colleague who might also benefit from it. We'd really appreciate it. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod. Emma and Nick welcome Angie Jones to the show. They're talking testing, and it's a good one. Trust me, you want to go to there. That episode will be ready for your ear holes next week. And Yulia, your last name, Startsev? Startsev, correct. Startsev, okay. Ross, your last name? No, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> you know I know how. <laughs>
Abu Kadije. Ah, uh, you know I know because it rhymes with DJ. It sounds like DJ. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you're booking a DJ. Yeah. Yeah, you like saying <laughs> my last name. I think you you find opportunities. I kind of enjoy saying it. I'm not gonna lie. Nice. But you're kind of going the Prince slash Madonna route, you know, like online. You're Faraz. Yeah. No, no last name required. Everybody knows Faraz. <laughs> He's that mad scientist over there that you can't figure out his last name until you book a DJ. It's cleaner. It's just, you know, it's just it, simple. It nice is. Plus, it's pretty unique. So, you know, they're not namespace clashes. You know, I got the yeah. problem of Jared, the subway guy, who turns out is like a longtime pedophile and stuff. Terrible, terrible <laughs> namespace clash. I do not want to be, I'm not associated <laughs> with that man. Neither do I enjoy subway sandwiches. So I'm doubly not with him. But uh, there's, is there any other Ferocis out there? Uh, I mean, somebody else bought Ferocis.com and oh. I regret it because I was like, <laughs> I was like, uh, I think I was like 11 or 10 years old when I wanted to buy, you know, my first domain name, and yeah. I didn't, I didn't have the like seven dollars to buy Frost.com back then, so I only bought like the other domain I wanted for the site I was building at the time, yeah. and then like you know a couple years later, this this random other guy who spells his name the same as me bought it, and I've been on .org ever since. Oh so, gosh, so, yeah, like a, like a chump. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> so. I wanted Santo.com, which was like held by some, there's some company that just bought like every last name, .com, just to hold him and be a jerk and sell them to you because capitalism. But then I found out the Tuvalu, is it Tuvalu? No, that's TV. Tonga, the Tonga domain, .to. So I really wanted S-A-N.to because that's a mm -hmm. great hack. But somebody owned that one as well. It's, you know, three-letter domain in Tonga, S-A-N. So I've been like, hounding that for years i'm playing the long game i'm gonna get it eventually every like six months i just go check it and see if they let it let it lapse like literally since like 2008 i've been doing that so maybe if you just stick around long enough that guy will let it, is he using frost.com or not i mean he's trying to have like a rap career or something oh he's never know. gonna give it up then <laughs> can't give that up that's, that's, that's the dream <laughs> can't give up your rap dream Sorry, you're not going to get it. Frost.org is cool, though. It's because you're a nonprofit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rather than a commercial entity. That's right. You're a nonprofit. <laughs> it's even cooler. Yeah. It gets I the job done. I think the one uh, web domain that I wanted to get and couldn't, it's one the when they put up the triple um, X domain for pornography sites. I wanted to get yyy.xxx. Oh. But someone was squatting on it already. And I was like, damn it. Uh, this yeah. was back in my art school days. It's a yeah. perfect artist website. <laughs> totally. You got to move fast on the triple X. <laughs> you got to move fast on this. <laughs> but I ended up, uh, when I lost my GitHub access, I ended up with heg.codes. That works out pretty well. I saw that one. When that I came cool. up with the dot .codes. Because yeah. you're code hag, so it's hag.codes. Exactly. Yeah, I like that domain. <laughs> I'm nowhere near as creative, so I just went for jaredsanto.net, you know. <laughs> I have the .com, but I redirected it to the .net because I don't know why. Back when I first signed up, I thought .net was cooler. And I've always just left it because I don't really use it anyways. Hmm. Anyways, we should do a podcast, shall we? <laughs> Here comes the intro music. And then I'll introduce the show. Okay. 